Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Okay. So here we are, episode three, still Number on three. location. The trifecta of fun. <laughs> we are uh, again at the Mental Health for All conference. This is part of the CMHA uh, national conference uh, here at the Hilton in Toronto. Okay. And we kind of have a CMHA kind of day planned today. Yes, a good theme. And we have really amazing guests coming on. So, And we're going to pretty much go to them uh, right off the bat here and not our usual like banter that you know our listeners tolerate. Are you disappointed? Tolerate. Are you disappointed? <laughs> No, actually, I'm not. I get enough of your banter outside of the podcast Fair that enough. I can I can withstand okay. uh, without it. But so we have coming up on the show. We have Joe Kim. He's the communications director at the Canadian Mental Health Association, the provincial sure. branch. But he uh, he works with the Talk Today program. And then we're also going to have uh, Mark Hennick, mental health advocate, right. uh, who many would know from his appearances on multiple media programs, including Canada AM when it was still around, CTV, News Channel, uh, you name it, Mark's been on it. And uh, lastly, we're going to finish with uh, Dr. Patrick Smith. He's the national CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, which right. is hosting this great conference here. And I'm sure he'll talk about the, the conference and, the, and sort of the, the vision the CMHA has to bring everyone together and, and improve mental the mental health system as well. Yeah, so hopefully we're able to capture all the kind of good energy that's happening here this week and, and uh, look forward to chatting with our guests. Pleased to be joined with Joe Kim. He's the Director of Communications for the Canadian Mental Health Association Ontario Division. And Joe's presenting, I believe, at the conference here today. And uh, one of the things that you're intimately involved with is the Talk Today program, which I know originated in the uh, OHL, and I think it's expanded. Can you tell us a little bit about that program? That's correct. First, thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. Uh, Great to uh, see this podcast, and (laughs) and glad to be on your second episode. So this is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And a a former newspaper guy, too. Yeah, it's true. we're like a, a, a clique here. It's <laughs> nice, right. it's nice yeah. to have you. That's right. There's might be a little side of alcohol or something down here. <laughs> the press club. I don't think the press club exists. No, <laughs> no. So, well, but get, getting back to your question, yeah, yeah t- Talk Today uh, originally began back in 2014 in, the, in uh, really um, the spring. Um, and like a lot of things in the mental health field, it was born out of a tragedy. Uh, there was a player uh, within the Ontario Hockey League who had died by suicide. And for those uh, listeners and viewers who might not know uh, the, the Ontario Hockey League, it is the premier development hockey league for young men and boys between the ages of 16 and 20 um, mm. here in Ontario, obviously. And, you know, these kids are used to being the best of the best uh, for this. Uh, when they get make this jump to this league, they're moving away from home, leaving all their friends, leaving their mm. school, staying yeah. with billets, um, trying to adjust to a new way of life. And whereas in the past they might have been the top player on their team getting all the ice time, they're going to a new environment where they could be the low man on the totem pole and not be getting the ice time they're needing or they want. And so we find, um, uh, so they might be struggling. So getting back to uh, spring of 2014, one of their players had died by suicide, hit the, hit the league pretty hard. Um, and the CMHA, Canadian Mental Health Association, Ontario Division, thought this might be a good opportunity to reach out to the league and see if there was any way we could support them. Great. And uh, essentially, that's how it was born. Uh, we sat, sat together with the league for several months and developed a plan to educate their players about mental health and suicide awareness and suicide prevention. Right. And it just, ro- it just rolled out from there, and it's been tremendously successful um, in the two and a half years, not only in the OHL, but in the broader s- sports community, let's say. Right. So what does, the, what does the program look like on the ground in the communities, it's like, you know, the OHL? And the CHL across the country, they're in smaller communities, you know, all over the country. Mm-hmm. So what would a Talk Today program actually look like on the ground? So um, we have, commu- we have uh, branches, we have more than 100 branches, across, about 100 branches across the country as part of our national organization. So a lot of them are matched up uh, or exist in communities where these local sporting organizations play. So the program, the way we explain it, it typically has um, four key components we have. Um, mental health and suicide prevention training workshops for players and anyone associated with the team. 
we have a role called the Canadian Mental Health Association uh, Mental Health Coach. So these are individuals from our branches who work directly with the teams to either deliver the training or make the team aware that these mental health and addictions resources are out there in the community should they need them. We have a specific role for someone on the team called a mental health champion, and they'll work with our mental CMHA mental health coach, and they'll also uh, be known to the players and anyone associated with the team that should, should anyone be struggling with their mental health, they can go to their internal CM, uh, internal mental health champion on their club. Mm. And the last piece, as communications guys, what, we're, what I get really excited about um, as well is the uh, health promotion, the game day events. Mm. So each team that we work with, uh, they host one at least one game day event. We find that some of the teams do more than one, dedicated to mental illness, uh, mental health, and uh, positive mental health and suicide prevention mm. awareness. Great. Um, so yeah, within the Ontario Hockey League last year, for example, we had 20 games in February, mm. uh, about 80,000 people in the arena to hear our messages on the videos, video boards, PA announcements, that sort of thing. And on social media, we hit, I think, 2.8 million wow. people over the month. Great. And it's been, it's been fantastic. And that, you know, we talked about this a while ago when we saw these sort of tragedies exist. And even with the Oshawa Generals, they're kind of in our community. But mm -hmm. for these young people that are away from their families and all their supports, um, you know, it's hard enough. And, and, and also you're dealing with the complexity of athletes who pretty much have been sort of trained at you don't talk about when you're when you have a physical like you know that you kind of keep that to yourself and it sort of permeates into mental health and how do we change sort of the the psyche of athletes we see it even professional athletes that you know you just don't talk about these things because it could have an impact on your mm -hmm. career and and you know how do we kind of break down these these kind of these perceptions yeah, the way i look at it is that um it's almost generational in the sense that you know i think my son who's nine He's going to have no problem talking about mental health issues right. when he, as he gets older um, because it's being less stigmatized and there's less discrimination around it. Um, what we're finding is that, you know, it's still a highly stigmatized environment, that hockey dressing room particularly, mm -hmm. for example, right? Yeah. Suck it up. Yep. You know, are you, you're not really hurt. Get back out there. Be a good teammate. Be a good yeah, teammate, man. exactly. But what we find is that because a lot of these, and not just in the hockey circles we deal with, but a lot of the sports organizations that we work with, a lot of these people, are they want to be leaders. Right? They want to be leaders on their team. They want to be leaders in their community. This, mm. Particularly with the Ontario Hockey League and that level of, of, um, of uh, hockey system, mm. they're born to be leaders. Right. Right? So what we find is that they want to talk about this stuff. Mm. And when we provide workshops and trainings for them, they, they all do it together. So they know that, mm. hey, you know what? There's no harm in talking about it. We're all, we're all getting the same experience mm. here. And, um, and what we find is that then these players, a lot of them take it upon themselves to go out into the community, not just through our game day events, but um, on their own, initiatives on their own that they do to get into schools to talk about mental health or to Great. raise awareness generally about mental health. So exactly. we're really fortunate to work with a good bunch of... Uh, uh, in the Ontario Hockey League, good bunch of... Uh, Dave Branch is great. Yeah. yeah, Dave Branch is great. Good bunch of uh, organizations and, and players. Yeah. So do you also provide that um, support to the billets? Because, you know, they're looking after the kids. They're probably seeing things away from, from the, the rink that others aren't seeing. That's a great, that's a great question. And, um, you know, to, to Dave Branch's credit, uh, Dave Branch, the head of the Ontario Hockey League and the Canadian Hockey League, for that matter, uh, last year, the second year of the program, he mandated that Billets had have to take uh, the oh, Safe Talk training, excellent, excellent. which is a three-hour workshop about suicide prevention. So um, we've had last year 100 and I want to say 180 billet individuals take the training. Wow. Uh, even more remarkable to me is that we've had um, 80 coaches that's, take, that's, take yeah. that's what I was going to say because in I mean not only in sports but in society, you know policies are great. But they got to be lived, you know, from the top down. And you know, it's one thing to have these these supports in place; it's another thing to live in and uh, breathe them every day. So, have you seen that buy-in from the coaches and management at the different uh, in the different teams in the different communities? Absolutely. I, th I think the, I think um, uh, the upper echelons of the organizations. I think they see today's athlete is different than, you know, the athletes that people of our generation mm -hmm. were used to seeing grow up and that right. tough guy machismo attitude. Um, so they see that they have to develop these these peop these players as individuals, and mm. that just not only means their physical health but their mental health as well. Mm. Um, so the buy-in from the coaches has been astounding, and 
there are coaches out there, you know, when they get involved with the program, then they start talking about their own personal experiences or that they, how they've been touched by, by mental illness. Now, have you had interest from other organizations, for example, like university athletics and other groups that want to kind of learn more about your program and how they can apply it to, to, to what they do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're finding it's tough to keep up with the demand for, for the, uh, the program at this point. Um, and it's funny because I work in communications, you guys work in communications, but I'm responsible for running a mental health promotion program, which I'm not complaining about it because it's really <laughs> cool. I'm a hockey, I'm a sports guy, so yeah. I, I like it. And I get to meet all these cool sports figures when I go around, you know, talking about this. Um, but uh, I forgot the question now. No, I was just asking if you've had other organizations yes. like university, athletics, yes. and different so want to kind of mirror what you do. Absolutely. So yeah. just last week we had uh, Sioux College launch the Talk Today program with their varsity athletes. Nice. Um, and they're, you know, they're fortunate, fortunate enough to have our Sault Ste. Marie branch, who's, who's been rolling this program out throughout the, with the, with their local OHL team um, and others in their community. So uh, we have OHL, they, you know, other universities have reached out. Mm -hmm. um, beyond, uh, beyond colleges and universities, we've had, a, we've had a pilot with a high school up in Kenora. Um, we've had, uh, I'm going to refer to my cheat sheet here. That's right. Uh, you know, we have more regional junior A hockey leagues coming on board. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's everywhere we turn, there's a new organization mm -hmm. looking for information about the program. That's fantastic. That's great. I'm, I'm sure there's measurement tools that you have in place to, that will ultimately measure its effectiveness in, in the communities that you're serving. But I wonder, have you, are there experiences or stories that have come to the surface as a result of going into these communities that have really made, made it um, real and made it, you know, that you're making a difference, that this program oh, is working? Absolutely. Regularly we'll get you know, a call from one of the leagues we're working with. Hey, we have a, we have a player in this community struggling. Help us out. Um, there's one, a couple, a couple uh, examples that I like to raise that are, that to me, uh, really show the effectiveness of this. Um, there's one billet individual who participated in this program in the Northern Ontario Junior Hockey League, I believe. Um, he took he took the Safe Talk program, which teaches you how to talk openly about suicide, and should should you uh, spot, and it teaches you how to spot the signs that someone might be contemplating suicide and how to address those directly. Right. So this individual took the workshop. And he ended up being at work one day, and he noticed something was wrong with a colleague, and he managed to speak to that colleague in a in a positive and open manner. And actually, the way he put it, he saved his life that day. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, the other example I like to use, and this is more of a player example from the Peterborough Peets, who have really shown great leadership on this. One of their players had taken the same Safe Talk training. They were at school one day. Um, they looked at the desk that they were sitting at, and there was some there was some writing on the desk that was really troubling to this to this young person because he had just gone through uh, the workshop that we provided. And he reached out to school officials, and they found the student that was struggling, and they had her admitted to hospital that day. So that there, you know, I could count fingers and toes how many examples that we, that we get on a regular basis. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, I think the program's phenomenal. Just by, just from the reading I've done and talking to you today, it's uh, and it's not an easy uh, world that you're diving into. Uh, I mean, I, I understand what your point where the athlete of today is much different, but you're talking about a, a, an environment, a hockey environment that's steeped in tradition and in a way, in a, maybe set about their their ways. So I think the difference you're making, the program is is tangible and and well and much needed. And and I hope we see it pay off as these, these young young men move up to the professional level where there's big money contracts at stake. And we've seen countless, you know, tragedies at the professional hockey level, whether it's due to, you know, concussion-related health, mental health issues or just, you know. And that's the one thing I, I think, too. And I, I kind of, back in the day when we had uh, the Boo Guards and the different people, I kind of from a media standpoint, kind of got upset because every time we talk about an athlete who may have taken their life, we talk about, it must have been concussion related, as if, as if athletes can't have the same mental health challenges. Like mm. it's either, you know, it's got to be something that caused it. Like they can't, you know, they're rich, so they can't have depression or anxiety disorders. And and I, hopefully we change the, the, the dialogue around that. It doesn't matter if you're rich or play hockey or do that. 
we all, you know, we struggle with these things, and we have to be open to having the conversation. Not that there's a direct, you know, link to just fighting and 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 this. Mm. That they're just the same as as everyone. Yeah, so. we, like, we like to say, you know, mental health doesn't discriminate. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Anyone anyone can live have an issue at any point in their in their life, and um, to be able to create an environment um, within such a highly stigmatized dressing room dressing room scenario, for example. Um, you know, it gives us hope that, you know, if they can speak about it in that in that type of environment, they'll be able to speak about it and ask and tell mm. others to speak about it openly as well. Right. So, and you're talking about a, a population that a lot of demands on those kids. Mm. You know, like uh, <laughs> you know, junior hockey in Canada is you know essentially pro professional hockey. The demands on their time, they're trying to balance school. They're like like we mentioned earlier, living in different communities. There, there's lots going on, and that doesn't stop. Uh, you know, when they leave the rank, it certainly doesn't stop even if they go to school and go to CIS or NCAA or whatever they end up doing or go to pro hockey. They, they, their, their life is a lot different than the ordinary person, and there's a lot of stressors. Sure. Absolutely. And what, you know, when we teach our, our workshops to the players, uh, sometimes we're asked, because their schedules are so busy, hey, can you cut it down? Can you make it an hour and a half <laughs> instead of three hours? And we say to them, you know what, you wouldn't cut CPR down from a three-hour workshop to one-and-a-half-hour workshop. Mm. This is a life skill we're teaching, and they're going to take this out beyond the rink, beyond the sporting venue, beyond the basketball court, wherever they're playing, into into real life. Mm-hmm. How would that work if a player asked the coach, can we cut the practice down to 15 minutes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. No, no, that would have been probably a, lot, not. a lot easier in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joe, thank you very much yeah, for joining us. It was great. I think it's yeah. a great program awesome and uh, program. great work. Oh, thank thanks. You. Thank you. And just one, one plug I want to get sure. in. Hey, we're, we're training and we're providing mental health support to the best junior hockey players across Canada because we're now associated with the Western Hockey League and mm-hmm. the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Nice. We need money. Okay. <laughs> Anyone out there listening who yeah. really wants to say, hey, we're helping, we're helping the best junior hockey players in Canada with their mental health, yeah. come see me and we'll talk. All okay. right. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. If it works, let us know. All right. All right. Thanks, Joe. Okay, so I think uh, I think we're ready to go. All right. So pleased to welcome Mark Hennick, mental health advocate, uh, very recognizable face in the mental health community. Uh, aside from being on our show right now, he's <laughs> yeah. also on all sorts of other uh, TV programs, news channels, often the voice for people with mental health issues. So, mm-hmm. thanks for being here, Mark. Happy welcome. to be here. Hey. Thank you for having me. So uh, we're here at the uh, CMHA National Conference, the Mental Health for All Conference, and. Uh, you're here not just to be on our show and have fun, but mm-hmm. uh, you're also here to do some work in your role with uh, CMHA National and the Mental Health Commission. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your, your presentation and what you're doing here this week. Sure. So today I delivered a workplace mental health um, preview session, basically. So uh, for the last two years, I've been spending my time running uh, and, and revitalizing one of our flagship workplace mental health programs across Canada, really scaling it up, uh, especially since this past January, to get um, many of our, uh, a, a good portion of our 100 branches, 100 plus branches really, uh, from coast to coast on board with providing companies workplace mental health training. So I was giving uh, some of our colleagues a bit of a preview of that today, what it looks like, a little bit of the background and history of the program. Uh, and then at the end of the day tomorrow, we'll be doing a, a panel uh, on workplace mental health and then closing out the conference with the, uh, with the closing address. The workplace mental health uh, program, mm-hmm. That has really become kind of a, a big, uh, big ticket item in mental health, for lack of a better term. Like, mm-hmm. what has been the buy-in, or have you seen a significant buy-in from um, from the worker from the workplaces? Like, are are we making progress in that area? Yeah, I think that we are. Um, it's it's uh, very early days, I think, since the release of the national standard for psychological health and safety in the workplace. There's been more attention to workplace mental health and safety than ever mm-hmm. before. Um, that said, that was only released about three years ago. So this is still very new. Companies are just starting to think about uh, mental health as a really pretty integral component of, of health and safety in their workplace. Um, there's a, a three-year, I think it's three-year research study project happening on the implementation of the standard right now. Number uh, More than 50 uh, companies of all kinds of different sizes, including hospitals um, and nonprofits, uh, to test out what this looks like if you actually take care of the mental health of your employees. What are the business outcomes of that? Uh, and we're starting to find out, although the, the data is early, that it actually does have a lot of uh, positive business outcomes. So 
I think what we're going to see happen in the next three to five years is that companies who don't get on board with safeguarding mental health and safety of their employees, they're the ones that are going to be left behind, that this is going to be a competitive advantage to take care of your employees. Is, is it still hard? I mean, um, companies have done a good job with providing um, physical spaces for people with physical challenges. You know, it's easier to look at, okay, accessible washrooms and things like that. Are companies still struggling with how do I make mental health accommodations yeah. and what does that really look like for employees? They totally are. And, you know, companies, I think, are, um, uh, they'll come to me and ask, ask me the question, how do I accommodate depression, for example? And my answer to them is that you don't. You don't accommodate a label. You don't accommodate a diagnosis. You accommodate the functional impairments that might be associated with that. Yeah. Uh, and that's where they seem to be, seem to be stumbling, that uh, these things don't have to be that complicated. That if, if somebody has depression, they might be struggling, for example, with getting to work uh, at an early hour. Maybe they're supposed to be in the office by 8 o'clock. And as a result of either their symptomology or their medication or their sleep cycle or whatever it is, they're, they're having difficulty with that. Okay, well, you know what? Flexible scheduling is actually a pretty easy thing that we can do. And if it's going to help you be productive at your workplace, then that's an easy accommodation that we can make. So employers often don't, um, they don't realize that it doesn't have to be complicated, that most mental health accommodations are cheap. They're less than $500, usually much less than that, mm -hmm. uh, and often just involves a simple modification to the workday. And, and keeping on the workplace theme, and obviously, you know, with our hospital trying to provide supportive employment and vocational opportunities, it's still a bit of a challenge, and I wonder what your ideas are around. How do we encourage the business community to say, okay, um, to take some of them who may have complex mental illness, but but to say, you know, there are going to be challenges with that. And sure. Are you going to be okay? You know, um, we offer peer support. And in hospitals, we kind of understand, like, there may be times that people need an extended time away. Right. Um, how do we encourage business to, to not stay away from people with mental illness when they're when they're hiring to, yeah. to accommodate those well i think there's there's kind of two tracks here one is reminding companies of the basic human right. rights of people with mental illnesses that you can't not hire somebody because they have whatever kind of mental illness but surprisingly the the rights of people with mental illnesses are routinely violated in that right. way um, even if they've already been hired and they start to become symptomatic later on uh, after they're already um, employed, we routinely see people being disciplined, fired, um, treated very differently in their workplace. So part of, the, uh, part of the mission there is helping companies and employees, for that matter, to understand what their rights are. Uh, the other side, I think, is actually we've got a lot of work to do to break down the stigma of these issues. There's mm -hmm. a, especially in workplaces, I find a prevailing view that people with uh, severe and persistent mental illnesses in particular are dangerous, mm -hmm. that they might be violent, right. that it's like law and order and suddenly they might kill somebody or go on a rampage. And helping people to understand that, that um, people who have these kinds of struggles are far more likely to be victims of violence mm -hmm. themselves right. than they're ever to be perpetrators, uh, that they can be just as productive, perhaps even more productive than others, uh, not in in spite of their illness, but because of it, because they've had to overcome so much, mm -hmm. they actually have a whole set of skills that a lot of other people don't have. Right. So really honoring the value in that, I think, is what we're trying to teach people. Great. You bring up stigma, and that's another big part of another part of your life. Yeah. Um, you are routinely the voice of people with mental health issues. And uh, you know, all you have to do is Google Mark Hennick. And uh, <laughs> there are several pages that come up, and it, does, it doesn't take long to, uh, uh, to find out a little bit about your, your life and your experience <laughs> with mental illness. Uh, for those who don't have the benefit of the, listening to our, our podcast or watching, give us a little bit of your story, uh, in, your struggle with mental illness, and, and where you are today. So I formally started dealing with uh, what I now know are the, the symptoms of a mental illness probably as early as 12, 13 years old. Uh, but like most people, I think it probably began a lot earlier than that. That's just when I started to notice. So late elementary school, early junior high school, dealing with depression and anxiety in particular, um, which then uh, uh, snowballed into being bullied because I was vulnerable, I think, and not able to really ask for help in a meaningful way. Um, like in workplaces now, we see performance issues, to, to reference that again. But for kids in school, when we know somebody's struggling when their grades start to drop and when they start to have interpersonal conflict, and all of that stuff was happening for me too, uh, not really having any kind of language because then, and even now, parents don't know how to have those kinds of conversations with their kids. So dealing with that stuff very early on, it ended up manifesting into suicidal uh, ideation and then suicide attempts uh, throughout much of my adolescent years. Uh, until it culminated in a point where uh, I was prepared and, and had planned after several prior attempts to kill myself. 
But uh, a stranger uh, found me in the middle of an attempt, uh, literally reached out and dragged me off of the edge of a bridge and saved my life. Uh, and it was that was my that was actually my last um, that was my last suicide attempt. Not because I then went into hospital again for the dozenth time and received miraculous treatment that that cured me and saved my life. Uh, though there were certainly lots of people out there who helped, but rather because I realized that I had a choice in my life to either uh, be like that stranger who saved me to reach out to others and, and not necessarily have any particular training and do that, although I do now. Um, so I could reach out to others and save others in that way through my own experience, or I could just stand on the sidelines and let it keep happening. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do that. Right. I didn't want to be that guy on the sidelines. So finding that purpose, finding that way to advocate for myself, but to advocate for others, I think my advocacy is pretty closely tied to my own recovery. And, and that's mm -hmm. what I've been doing ever since. Uh, and you That's got a chance to, to, to meet that stranger that saved your life. That must have been powerful. It was, it was incredible because I had um, lived for, for more than a decade having no idea uh, if he was even real. <laughs> you know, be, right. being in that place in my head at that time when I was so young and in such turmoil in the middle of a suicide attempt, uh, I had no idea if I had just made him up or, or what had happened. Um, but I realized that that was a that was a missing part of my own story. I felt inauthentic because I was I was I had been talking for more than a decade about this stranger in a light brown jacket who saved my life, but I had no idea who he was. Um, so I asked for the public's help. Um, I, I tried to I tried to do it the bureaucratic way. <laughs> I tried to ask for the health records and the police yeah. records, and that wasn't getting me anywhere. Uh, so I had gotten involved with media by then already. I had done the TED talk. I had uh, become quite involved with uh, a number of news outlets. So. Uh, as well as social media. Uh, so I asked for the public's help uh, via, via some uh, social media and traditional media. And within a few hours, uh, we had leads on who he was. And then by the end of that day, I had connected with him. Uh, and I found out his name that, that his name is Mike, that he lives in Halifax, uh, that he's been working in mental health ever since, just like me. So <laughs> wow. two people were able to impact each other in, that, in those couple of seconds together. And that's, that's an incredibly powerful story, I think. Earlier this year, you were at our hospital uh, in Whitby uh, speaking to a group of mental health professionals, not unlike what you just did uh, this morning or you're going to be doing all week. And uh, I find it incredible when uh, somebody like yourself goes up there and, and shares your story in front of people who are already bought in. I mean, these people have dedicated their lives you know, to helping people uh, with mental illness. And yet you get up there and you're inspiring, right? You get these, you get these people, you get them excited uh, and re-energized about what they do. Um, when you come to a place like this, I'm guessing it's, it's very, very similar. How does that help you? Uh, or sort of like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you bring that to you. Bring your story with you everywhere you go. Yeah. And the, does it ever uh, surprise you the reaction that you get when you go to these different places and you speak to these different groups? Yeah, you know, not anymore. Um, I've, had, I've been very fortunate to have been able to speak to just about every audience and every kind of audience there is. And you know, every audience is a little bit different, I think, depending on who's in it, but also the just just the nature of the event and the time of day that you do it. And so there's all that practical kind of stuff. Um, but I actually particularly like speaking to healthcare audiences and mental health care audiences in, uh, specifically, uh, because I think there actually is still a lot of work we need to do in this sector to break down the internal stigma uh, that we have against the, uh, our own people that we help, but also within ourselves, making sure our mental health agencies, our hospitals are psychologically healthy and safe too. Because if you're going to try to help other people, you've got to be able to, to walk the walk uh, in, in addition to, to mm -hmm. helping others. Um, so, you know, that, that's why I'm passionate about this group. But also what I find is that everybody gets into this kind of work for a reason. I find there's a higher proportion of people in healthcare type settings and helping professions who have struggled themselves, uh, either, either directly or with a family member or whatever. So uh, to be able to allow them to tell their story, too. Uh, to be able to say, look, I've, I've been involved in this um, sector for a while, and, and I'm uh, fortunate to be able to work at, at a number of different levels in this sector, and my experience hasn't held me back. In fact, it's been a, it's been a benefit to me. Uh, to, to, my struggle has been a benefit in my current life. So to help give that message to them so they can realize that they can open up too, they can break down that stigma within this sector that, that needs it just as much as any other. And, and the power of stories, we love telling our patients stories, and we've seen some some amazing feedback from those stories and uh, sometimes there's a fear or apprehension of, of that. Um, I'm just wondering from your standpoint, when you were kind of deciding to take your story and put it out there, um, uh, 
and maybe this can help other people. Like, what kind of things were you thinking about, and and were those fears real after yeah. the fact, or did you find it really actually helped you as an individual in self-esteem and finally yeah. being able to to talk about it in an open manner? Yeah, you know, it's uh, I I think. Um, it's never good to characterize something as as wholly black or white, uh, and I think that's true for self-disclosure as well. Mm-hmm. It's not all roses and peaches, and yeah. like there's still <laughs> yeah. lots yeah. of there's still stigma. lots of stigma out there. Sure. There is, um, and even today, you know, people are. Um, I've been doing this for a while, and sometimes when people don't know that about me, and I disclose, one of their first responses is that, "Oh, I never would have pictured you as somebody <laughs> with having depression." <laughs> sure. what, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. How do you yeah. picture somebody with depression? Mm-hmm. So, so I still encounter that pretty regularly. Um, you know, being active in this space, there's lots of different opinions about what mental health is, about uh, recovery in particular, whether or not it's possible for people to recover. I actually happen to believe that it's it's probable that everybody can recover, regardless of where they are on that spectrum. But not everybody believes that, and that's okay, too. Uh, there's a lot of internalized stigma that people deal with. So the type of, when I talk about hope and recovery and all that kind of stuff, it's because I've been there, because I've heard all those stories, too. But not everybody's in a place where they're able to receive that message. Yeah. So... I think I, I raise that point because um, that can be discouraging for some people to, to kind of to they can feel shut down by that. But I don't think that you have to be. I think that you keep plugging away with it. You, you be true to yourself. You don't do this for anybody else. You don't disclose this, your own struggles for anybody else. You do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do it in a safe and effective way, I think. Um, but you make sure that you, you take care of your own um, your own needs and your own self-care, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that, that's what's been helpful for me, I great. think. And the, yeah. the great thing about the world we live in today is we have people like yourself, and you're not alone. There are other people who share their mm-hmm. story that people can model kind of their um, decision-making mm-hmm. after. They can see that the reaction that you have and the ability that you have to share your story, and they can decide if it's something they want to do. Years ago, they, they wouldn't have had anybody to kind of look at and say, hey, maybe I, you know, it's work for them, it's, maybe it'll work for right. me. We didn't have those people speaking before. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, I get I get um, messages from people all over the world every single day, uh, being so active on social media, especially about exactly this kind of issue. You know, they'll they'll say, um, "I've been struggling for a really long time, but I saw your TED talk, or I saw the thing on the news, or this thing that you wrote, and I want to do that too." Mm-hmm. And, and you know, everybody's in a different place, and they they ask me for how they can get into that, and you know, the for for me it was is taking that very first step of actually admitting to yourself that you're struggling, mm-hmm. that you might need help, uh, and taking care of yourself in that way. Because self-advocacy, I think, is is where uh, any kind of mental health advocacy starts. Internally, internalizing that message in yourself that you are worthy of help, that you are worthy of recovery, mm-hmm. uh, and you deserve to get the help that you need. One area in mental health that when we talk about advocacy really being needed is in severe and complex mental yeah. illness. Like yeah. We've come a long way in... Uh, um, Destigmatizing depression and anxiety, as long as it's not too messy, right? Right, like yeah. it's okay. Yeah, you're, you know, yeah. you're going through a period. You're going to be okay. Going back to work, um, you're getting help. That's great. But if it gets uh, to a point where, um, like, suicide attempts or conflict with the law, disorders. psychotic yeah. disorders, yeah. It, like, you, all you have to do is read the paper mm. and, uh, you, and or <laughs> or social media comments when something happens and it's in the sure. media. And those, that stigma, especially around severe and complex mental illness, is alive and prevalent. It is. And, you know, I think that this is another area, though, where we need to, um, we need to take a broader view of things. One of the most effective ways to prevent suicide isn't to line up ambulances at the bottom of the bridge. It's not even, and while, while to stick on the theme of suicide, um, uh, physical uh, barriers work. Uh, putting, you know, fences and stuff on bridges, that stuff works. But it's not going to stop the people from thinking about suicide. Right. It's going to stop them from going to that place. Um, so the most, one of the most effective ways to actually prevent suicide is to deal with all the stuff that leads up to it. More than 90% of the people who die by suicide have a mental illness at the time of their death. If we can treat depression, if we can treat those um, uh, difficulties with, with coping very early on in kids and youth... Um, before it becomes this severe and persistent thing, before it's even a suggest, before they even need the help, if we can give people help, yeah. that's what we want to do because that's going to prevent that stuff later on. So we have to be careful about um, being too reactive only at the end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. The stuff at the beginning is just as important, uh, yeah. if not more important, in terms of uh, preventing some of the more severe and persistent stuff later on. That said, we need yeah. to have a spectrum of services yeah. for everything. I was going to say, like going back to your youth and and you know 
the day that you were on the ledge. Like, is there something when you look back to say, I wish this had have happened right. prior to that? Whether it, did you did you reach out to s- some area when you were struggling that kind of was a barrier? Like, what would have yeah. What what could it be we put in place that you know if we go back in time that maybe have kept you from that moment? Yeah, you know, and to to step back to the to the very early building blocks, I think of it. Uh, really, having a better sense of my own emotional literacy would have been helpful mm. for me. At least that's what I would call it now. Right. You know, if I'm if I'm um, um, in a mental health crisis, for example, and I ha- at the time had no idea what these things were that I was feeling, had no idea what uh, skills I needed to implement, realizing, okay, I'm feeling down right now. Here's what I need to do to counteract that. Here's who I need to talk to uh, in order to deal with this stuff. I had no idea any of that mm-hmm. stuff. I didn't even know what I was feeling. So just the basic ability of learning how to name and label your emotions and then how to deal with those emotions in a more mindful way, that would have been incredibly helpful for right. me. But we're just now starting to, in in some schools and in some mm-hmm. parenting programs and things like that, teach people about the importance of uh, basic emotional literacy. Are you surprised that in this day and age that we don't have consistent mental health literacy in schools? I, I'm, <laughs> I'm still baffled by that. I mean, when I first... Uh, wanted one of the very first acts of advocacy, I guess that I that I did in the mental health space um, was approaching my high school principal and told him that I wanted to talk to my peers about suicide, and that's one of those things <laughs> where yeah, you can feel the room change when yeah, you say that, yeah, yeah. and that was no different then. That he said no, 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 we can't do that because if you talk about suicide, it gives people the idea to go out and do it, right, which right. of course is not true. Yeah. I mean, it it might bring up all kinds of stuff for them and all that, but it doesn't give them the idea as though it had never been there before, right. and I even knew that at the time. Um, so there is still, though, this very firmly embedded idea, and it, it's partly, I don't know if, it, if it's even a, a risk aversion that, that school boards have and that, that um, anything that deals with kids have around um, potentially triggering people, things like that. But we do need to be able to have these difficult conversations early, early on uh, with, with, the, with young kids, with uh, uh, all levels of the school system to help them understand these issues. Yeah, agreed. And that's why I think the work you're doing is, is so great, because you mentioned earlier somebody made a, uh, a comment that you don't look like you would <laughs> right. suffer from depression. Yeah. I think that's, that's key because you are the stigma. And it doesn't discriminate, you know, people have, People need to realize that mental illness doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic, your class is, what your uh, ethnicity is. Like, it does not discriminate. We need to, we really need to hammer that point home with yeah. people. Well, that and the idea that um, illness and health are not binary. It's not that you're mm. sick or you're not. I mean, mm. that uh, we all deal with things from time to time. You can be a bodybuilder and still get a cold. You're not, mm. Im- you're not immune, you know, <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah. Or, or whatever it is. You can be the healthiest person in the world and still deal with some things. I still deal with symptoms and relapses of depression. I still deal with anxiety on a di- daily basis. Uh, I take medication. I talk to a therapist because that's the stuff that works for me. Mm-hmm. I'm still happy. I'm still healthy. I'm still functioning a, a great. I'm, I enjoy my life a lot. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that, um, everything will always be amazing. Mm. You know, there's going to be struggles. And that's one thing that I think that people with lived experience in particular, uh, that we need to do better education around that. Right. The recovery looks different for everybody. Yeah, yes. Some, For many people, that means 100% cure. They never deal with symptoms again. That's pretty rare, actually. Mm-hmm. Everybody struggles sometimes, and sometimes you relapse, and sometimes you, you, you know, recovery is not a straight line upward. That's no, for sure. and in the definition of recovery... I think in society is that it's a straight line, yeah. right? It's a, you break your arm, you get a cast, you're healed. You know, you have a cold, you get better. You don't yeah. have a cold mm-hmm. anymore. But when it comes to mental illness, it's a, it's a wavy line. It is. And you know what? That's actually okay. I actually prefer it that way because when you take this, um, growth mindset approach. It's that every time you relapse, that's an, I think to myself as much as I can when I'm relapsing in my depression, great. This is another opportunity to practice these skills, to mm. learn something new, to be able to come back better than I was before. Mm. It's not, it's not stepping backward just because you relapse. It's actually just another opportunity to improve yourself again. It's like managing expectations. We hear that all the time in the workplace, yeah. you know, and, and when you're working on a project or initiative. And I think uh, our job as communicators is to help the public understand that when it comes to mental illness, you need to have, uh, we need to help you manage your expectations, that it looks different for everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could have somebody that is off work for three months and they get the help they need. They have the tools they need to, to, to go back and, and live their life like they were. And some people need more intensive support. Yeah. And they might not be able to go back to work or it might be quite some time or they might have to, find, like we know patients that have told their stories, they've gone back to work but in a much different field because yeah. it doesn't 
translate to what they're what they're dealing with in their in their lives. So they've yeah. had to kind of make adjustments, and I think it's our job to kind of get that message out a little bit. You bet. And I think you know, well, and and the idea around managing expectations though needs to be such that. Um, we're helping people to identify where they should be or, or what direction they should be going in their life. It's not a matter of saying to them, look, you have schizophrenia, so the best you can hope for is this, uh, and, and no. you should really just get used to that. Well, no, I don't actually accept no. that. I think it's no. that, okay, you're going to have struggles in this area of your life, but you don't have to do that anymore. Maybe you're, maybe you're better suited to this, or maybe we want to unlock or find out what you're passionate about in this other area, and then let's help cultivate that. Or maybe instead. it'll just take time for Maybe you to get it'll just there. take time. Yeah. Maybe you need to go into hospital for a little while and get some treatment. Maybe you do need to take medication for the rest of your life. That's fine. Whatever you need to do to stay healthy and happy. Uh, uh, I think one of the worst things that we've done is to stigmatize any kind of treatment or help uh, Mm. that's out there. You know, whatever works for somebody, if it works for you, then that's great. I'm happy for you. It might not work for me, but that's okay, too. This Mm. looks a little bit different for everybody. And that's the struggle, too. Like, when people want to, if we even talk from government standpoint, the acute care model, right? If you're going in for, you know, cataracts, like yeah. everything is really kind of, this is what we're going to do. This is what it's going to look like. This is the recovery time. Yeah. And everybody wants to apply that. Mental health isn't that way. No. It isn't that cut and dry. And the thing is, you know, not you even know? physical health is like that. <laughs> no, no, but, no, you know, no, I know. But we still want to be able to too. funding yeah. formulas and everything. They yeah. want everything yeah. to be very exact. Yeah. It's well, neat and tidy. It's neat they and tidy. And yeah. it's not... It's not neat and tidy. And this this whole um, so, very social worky idea of leaning into the discomfort. Go- government doesn't like that, of course. Mm, yeah. But it's so true. I mean, yeah. it's it's it, this this stuff doesn't fit into little boxes. It shouldn't. It should be person centered, responding to the person in their place at that time. Exactly. Right. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. Oh. It was a great time chatting with you, and you. Uh, always a pleasure. We'll look forward to seeing you on CTV, Global, yeah. all these channels I see every morning. So thank you very much for making. <laughs> thank time. you for all the work you do. Thank you. That's all. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. (laughs) I was wondering why you were here. So that's, (laughs) I'm glad you cleared that up. It's just for that. All right. All right. So we're pleased to welcome to the MindVine podcast, Dr. Patrick Smith, the national CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association. Thank you for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Pleased to be here. So we've been here for a couple of days. Uh, I know the national conference is the uh, the final two days. Uh, how's it been going so far? What's it been it's like? It's been going great. You know, and the whole reason, to, really, to have a, a conference like this, mental health, mental illness, and addiction together by design. And for most people, it'd be like, well, why do you need that? Um, in Canada, you have Canadian Psychological Association conference, different disciplines, mm. or different right. diagnosis. Let's have a diagnose, or let's have a conference on addictions or schizophrenia, but or let's talk about health promotion and prevention from a mental health perspective, but never one that brings everyone together, all the stakeholders, so people with lived experience, mm. people who are working in the field, and it's it's bringing everyone all together to, for one common goal, which is to move the needle forward for mental health care. The, the lived experience piece I, we find very interesting. We have a peer support program at our hospital. Yeah. It's, it's vital to the operation Absolutely. of our hospital. Absolutely. And it's been kind of a recent movement you know, in the last number of years where we're bringing in people like peers, lived mm-hmm. experience. What has that brought to the mental health sector? Well, you know what's really fascinating for me is uh, I've been in the mental health sector. I've been in Canada's mental health sector for 20 years. I'm originally from the States. And um, peer support has come and gone over the years. The founder of Canadian Mental Health Association, Clarence Hinks, in 1918, was a peer. He was a physician who had mental illness, and he, he founded the organization. So um, over time, the stigma and discrimination, I think it, it does kind of rob people of their voice. Um, and so we're the same. Any chance we can get um, to give, give uh, people who have the uh, ex- lived experience the opportunity to speak out not only about their journey in their illness, but the power of recovery. And for me, that's the most powerful message that you're going to get. Um, all the news stories talk about the ugliness of addiction or whatever, and even people in the healthcare system, uh, doctors or whatever, maybe people working with clean needles exchange or whatever. If you, uh, we, we were talking to a group of policemen and first responders and someone and people with lived experience with addiction were actually given this, um, giving this presentation. And they said, you're frequent flyers, the people you always see. And if you don't um, see them, um, what happened to them? 
they say they either died, moved, or they're locked up in jail. Mm. They didn't make room for the possibility that they got better. <laughs> and that's the same with our healthcare system. Even right. though many, many people get together, uh, get better, but when they do, they just go on about their lives and they're not mm. sharing their stories often. And there's a lot of talk about the mental health system and how we can, I mean, I think we all can agree it needs to change and it needs to be better. And, and having these types of events where you're bringing in mm -hmm. all those voices, mm -hmm. um, is it the goal of CMHA also to, not just to today, but to carry that conversation forward collectively, to work together to, to build a better system? Yes. Ian Beck, who's going to be doing, uh, from the Grant and Beck Foundation, who's going to be doing a panel tomorrow with a number of different people. Um, I met with him in Montreal, and he said, mental health reform is a team sport. And anyone who knows in, from the mental health field, we play more like we're playing tennis. Mm. And not devils. <laughs> we, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone, um, uh, it's almost like it's a scarcity mentality since we've been so underfunded. Mm -hmm. um, it's like hunger, it's like hunger games. Everyone's going to the government trying to get their piece of the pie right. to get their services um, going. And it's because it's a scarcity mentality because of chronic underfunding vis-a-vis um, -vis the burden of, of health. So if we look at any other area of health, if it was exacting this kind of a toll on society, on the burden of illness economically, mm -hmm. um, and you had really good treatments that you can demonstrate will save money and save lives, right. hips, knees, whatever, there would be a public outcry. Imagine if you go to a province, and in one town, excuse me, you have um, first and second grade. The next town has fifth grade and ninth grade, mm -hmm. uh, just because that's what it happens. And the next town has second grade and university. You wouldn't have to go do a, stra a strategy to figure out um, what should we do here. You would just say there's a clear evidence-based system of services right. that if you if you just extract basic service, basic education out of mm -hmm. out of towns, you're going to have a problem. You don't have something. I, I graduated with my PhD in clinical psychology in 1991. I had to demonstrate proficiency in in cognitive behavioral therapy (CBT) evidence-based treatment and it's not new right. it's not available in Canada hmm. you might be able to get it um, if you go to public hospital mm -hmm. but the vast majority of people unless you can pay on Young and St. Clair Avenue you, you can get CBT right. there's a huge two-tier system in many areas of mental health and addiction services it, look mm -hmm. at all the for-profit residential addictions treatment that yep. are popping up yep it's because the publicly funded services have created the gap to let the US based uh, market driven they, they're just there for you mm -hmm. know they're equity companies that are doing this they're not they're not healthcare companies yeah um, any other area of healthcare we'd just be in a public outcry and you'll correct me if my stats are wrong but I going back to the funding you know I believe like mental health and addictions the you know, the disease burden is maybe around 13%, but gets about 7% of the health yeah, dollars. And I think the other thing about that percentage is it's 7% of our health funding goes to mental health. And the striking thing about that is it's very un-Canadian, but we're the lowest of all G8 countries. Right. Hmm. So the others are around 10 or 11%. Right. I think the lowest other one is 9 hmm. And this, so... Tinkering around the, the edges and giving a little bit of pilot funds here or demonstration projects is not what we're talking about. Mm. We're talking about recognizing that over years and years, an example, I used to be at an organization where they had um, some residential addiction treatment facilities. Right. And in the tough years, financially, where they had to make a decision between making payroll or upkeep of their facilities, these beautiful Victorian homes, sometimes the roofs were caving in, the right. And years and years of deferred maintenance that you could have, you know, put in 30000 a year or whatever to maintain it. Mm. Now, it's a big ticket item to fix those structures. It's exactly the same thing in the mental health system. Deferred maintenance and deferred investment mm. in basic mental health care, it's not a cheap fix. Right. But it's one that will pay for itself. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's one thing to put that out on paper show the evidence and everything but it's another thing to say what did the UK do mm. and actually they demonstrated mm -hmm. that it worked one example CBT psychologists social workers that are trained we have the same model where 
physicians can bill for CBT. They may not be the best trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. They, a GP may have 25 other patients in the office, so they're not going to be very incentivized to do it. Um, so, so where do you get the money to, to all of a sudden put all these mental health professionals, structured psychotherapy out there in the community? You got to do it. You got to make the investment, and then the the shift of of the cost in the in the physician care system went it, it completely paid for itself, and it started to focus on what they were better able mm. to focus on. Mm. In the meantime, though, I think the <clears throat> it appears the burden to kind of improve the mental health system. And I always refer to our old uh, uh, physician in chief, Doctor Ian Jahi, He would say it's not a system. It's a system with a lowercase s, not a system with an uppercase s, because right. they would be working together better. That's right. But the burden is on the providers to make the system better. That's and right. even at a conference like this, you look at who's attending the different different services that they're providing. A lot of them have different interests, like there are suicide prevention, there's you know, your CMHA branches, there's specialized organizations. How do you get every, or how do we as a sector get everybody moving in the same direction? You know what, um, Catherine Zahn just spoke, Dr. Zahn from uh, KMH, and she, this was her topic, and she said, we need to start being us instead of um, I and you and, and me, um, because we have, to, we have to put our common cause on the table and do it together. <coughs> Adv- advocacy. Right. That's the one thing we can all do together, and, and we have to figure out what are we advocating for. Um, but even within CMHA alone, everyone knows that this, this branch does this, this branch does that, and it's hard to get everyone to come, to come together. So it, it's an imperative, and I think that um, that's exactly the purpose of this conference, yeah. is to bring this together, have the dialogue, and then, you know, out of that last keynote speech, we already have a plan. We're going to start. Um, CMHA and KMH, we're gonna we're gonna make a start. Let's join who else wants to join us, and be the coalition right. that that advocates as a we. And and you know there have been really good examples too. With not enough, I mean, imagine if you had the situation where you had second grade there and fifth grade there, and hmm. w- there have been with that scarcity mentality some really good examples of collaborative practice, collaborative partnerships, and we need to kind of start showing the, showcasing those more, showing how they are effective, but it really is going to mean putting the client, the individual, and their family in the center right. and having people work around them and ra- rather than being so institutional siloed, yeah. and siloed. Yeah. So speaking of advocacy and funding, can you, um, can you tell us a little bit about the Get Loud campaign, um, sort of the... The rationale behind it and any success that you've seen from that. Yeah. So uh, I think it's 66 years that, um, that uh, CMHA has been doing Mental Health Week, but only the last few years that we've done the Get Loud campaign. And I think it's because we're very Canadian about asking for money <laughs> in the mental <laughs> yeah. health field, right? Polite, yeah. Excuse me, but I think we could, could uh, benefit from And uh, Bev Gutry, for the um, executive director from British Columbia's uh, CMHA, just said in there, we are the land of pilot projects, just demonstration pro- funding, um, year-end funding, um, where you don't have sustainable um, resources. So Get Loud is about a couple things. It's, it's, it's taking the um, let's talk and really um, looking at it from everyone's perspective. We're getting loud and we're asking every individual, every family to get loud about talking about it to reduce, in, to reduce stigma and end discrimination because Stigma isn't the problem. It's the discrimination that people experience, and that's why it's stigmatizing. Um, But we're also getting loud uh, to politicians to say it's not okay to be 7%. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, if you continue to do this, you're costing Canada significantly to a point where it will take more and more and more to recover. And you're costing people's lives. Um, So... So it's getting loud and taking the message and, and different messages to different people, but all in the, in the same vein to be able to kind of turn the corner. And I think um, one of the things I'm really excited about, and, I'll, and to be frank, um, one of the reasons why I took this position, because I'm in my fifth month now, um, CMHA is an organization that um, isn't completely living up to its potential. Every tile um, across the country kind of doing great work, but not really leveraging the strength of the mosaic that mm-hmm. is CMHA. Yep. But then what about that mosaic along with our partners, the, the hospitals, the um, community partners we, sure. we work with? 
and we have an opportunity to um, a tipping point opportunity in 2018 we're going to be 100 years old so the gauntlet's thrown out internally if we can't come together to rally to make this a true tipping point for mental health so both awareness raising you really bursting through the ceiling on the stigma and discrimination but then also um, getting to the point where we we are saying okay now how do we work together to implement this increased funding that the mm-hmm. government has we want everyone in Canada to be joining us in this celebration yeah. and say the way we're celebrating CMHA's hundred years and more importantly investing in mental health for the future is blank and we want every corporate one corporate Canada we want um, the Canadian government to fill mm-hmm. in the blank right and that's the unfortunate I think what we've <clears throat> seen is with the with a lack of funding all, all the all the whether it's hospitals or agencies, it's almost like we're kind of battling for that piece of pie. It should be here. It should be there. Instead of working collectively, exactly. say we need more funding because there's a value in all of us in the system. Exactly, and you know it's a clear like and again in the UK, there's a clear tiered services, a stepped mixed stepped care matching approach where you have you. It's not like we do a lot of work in advocating and for um, smoking cessation and yeah. or never smoke. You know. That doesn't mean if someone has lung cancer that we don't um, treat the lung cancer. It's both and. Mm. In our field, it's always battling about who gets the money. Mm. We need to say there needs to be that developmental pathway of all of these services along Mm. the way. CBT is a great example. We have have CBT-based services that are provided by peers, supervised by a psychologist. It's evidence-based. Bounce back. Um, living life to the full. Not just even. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I would love to have clinical psychologists in every backyard. <laughs> Not going to happen. And and the UK realized that too. But there are ways to effectively have that model delivered. And and if someone really needs the psychologist before these other layers, go directly there. You don't have to have treatment failures and all these experiences. But the vast majority. Mm-hmm. With, with training, peer training and everything, can actually do it that way. Right. And that's what's critical is that it's, um, it's not either or. We have to go in. And when you have something like this much of an underfunding, when I was working at that last organization, I couldn't say, do I fix the roof right. or do I fix this foundation that's crumbling? Because right. both were happening, and I had no choice but to fix both. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Then we were able to put the nice new kitchen and dining room in. But you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Those two things... Yeah. Um, I think that that's the message we have to get. This isn't something to ignore anymore. We can, we can demonstrate that we've obviously ignored it more than any other G8 country, mm-hmm. and the fix isn't going to be cheap, no. but it's going to cost, um, pay for itself. Right. And the time is now. We've yes. been waiting all these years, and mental health is finally on the forefront of society, exactly. or at least getting there. Exactly. And uh, yeah. it's been a few years, and it's time for I that's think right. some real, real and change. And we're just hoping that the 2018 can be an inclusive thing. It's not celebrating us alone. It's using that as an ex- as a reason, excuse, Trojan horse, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> to um, to get everyone engaged in that. And, you know, and also to acknowledge the sad part about it, which is Clarence Hinks, we have audio clippings of him. He founded the organization because he wanted to end stigma. Mm -hmm. He founded the organization because he wanted to promote access to humane um, evidence-based care. (laughs) And we're dealing with the same thing. And here we are talking about the same thing. Have we made strides? Absolutely. But I don't want to be, well, unless we won't be here, but... um, we shouldn't let our grandkids um, be here for the next century still talking about this. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time yeah, today. It was a great pleasure. chat. Okay. And, uh, it's been you. a great conference. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for much. having us here today. This thank you. Great. Thanks for being here. So that was great. Interesting. It was great. Uh, First time I actually had a chance to talk to Mark Hennick and just, you know, his story is so amazing, but um, just a just great insight, right, from that peer perspective. So it was a great pleasure. All of them. Like, yeah. is it really, you know, the... Even pro- Joe Kim, the, uh, the Talk Today program was very interesting. I Not really just didn't because know he's that. a fellow journalist by, <laughs> yeah. by John Hayes, us talking about that, but 
Yeah, just some really good programs, right? Grassroots programs that the CMHA is doing. Yeah, and it was and Dr. Patrick Smith. That's my first uh, opportunity to meet him. Very interesting about how uh, he feels the mental health sector needs to work together. We need to kind of change the system as a whole and and uh, collaborate. And and this is kind of an example of that kind of collaboration that he'd like to see forward. I'm sure a lot of other people in the mental health sector. So right. it was very informative. Great day, and that puts a wrap on episode three. So thanks for uh, thanks for watching, and next time. For tuning in. Visit mindvine.ontarioshores.ca for details on upcoming podcasts. And don't forget to keep the conversation going on social media by using hashtag Mindvine. It